Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Illuminate, a podcast series from Hope Fellowship Church where we share stories to inspire growth and encourage engagement in our community. My name is Hannah Bowen and I'm the Worship Arts Coordinator at Hope. And my name is Nathan and I am the Connection and College Pastor here at Hope. Today we are continuing in this season of Back to the Basics, which is about understanding the practices that believers should take to totally transform into who God has created them to be. And we're talking to Chris Kilgore again. It's part two of our conversation. If you haven't listened to part one, we strongly suggest uh, that you go back and you listen to episode one of this, uh, talking specifically about scripture and the study of it in our own walk, because episode one really provides uh, just context to everything that's about to happen in this and this episode, and then also episode three. Five or six years ago, I went through the Bible in 90 days. And so mm-hmm. I was listening to what someone reading at some of that's 16, 17, 18 chapters a day. So that's a lot. Mm-hmm. But what I found was, and I, I could not have, because I wasn't reading it to study, I was just reading it to read it. And, and I realized that by the time I got to the end of Malachi in the Old Testament, I was so frustrated with everything. Like it was, I, I was not anticipating the feeling of the, the dense feeling of just darkness and hopelessness that I felt. And when I flipped the page and got and, and started in Matthew, I'm telling you, it was. It, it was there was an experience in my mind and my heart that I, I it's hard to explain because it was almost like getting saved again. It was like I this this is what I've been waiting for. Like mm-hmm. all along, all of the six hundred years of devastation, I've been waiting for one hero to step up and do something about all of this. And then when Matthew starts to say, "Now this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ," like you think. Here it is. This is everything that I've been waiting for. It is the answer that I've been waiting for. And it is. I think when you get to that point, if, if you don't allow that point to color everything else, then it does just seem, if you read the Old Testament, it's confusing and it's drearysome. If you read Paul, it's impossible to keep. But when you start with Jesus and you start with the Gospels in, in the Scriptures and let that guide you in both directions, suddenly it is, there's this, there's this you have the ability to breathe. You have the ability to, to sort of, okay, I, I see what's happening now. And it is. It's beautiful. It is. It's different. Yeah. I So... I empathize with that. I uh, was challenged to read through the Bible in 30 days. Did it with my friend, mm-hmm. best friend, uh, and I have never been so depressed by reading the Bible. <laughs> like, it's a complete, like, it started off great, right? Like, the Pentateuch, yeah, you're like, yeah. oh, this is fantastic. Like, yeah, Leviticus is tough, but it's great. And, like, you know, framing it from Jesus, like, look at all of these. God loved us so much in Leviticus that he wanted to make sure that we had every single possible thing covered so that we could be deemed, quote, unquote, righteous. Yeah. And now we failed miserably at it, but that beautiful picture, right? And you keep going, and all of a sudden, yeah, you're in the judges. And I just remember exactly how you're feeling bogged down and genuinely depressed by the time I got to the end of it. I was like, this is like... And then I got to Matthew and it was like, it was literally like this weight lifted off and all of a sudden I just enjoyed reading yeah. scripture yeah. again. And I think that that is, we all read scripture, uh, every single person reads it through a lens and that lens can be biases, it can be backgrounds, it can be prejudices, it, it can be whatever you're bringing to the table in your own life and experiences. And I think to then read through the Bible though with the lens of Christ opens that door and broadens the conversation like you're saying and doesn't make it so specific just based on your experiences but you're basing it off of Christ and who he is and how he experienced this world in his human flesh and so I I think it's it's one of those things where it's it's absolutely exhausting you've kind of already have stepped into that right of of how we should interact with scripture but you personally I, I think in knowing that we all approach this with different lenses and, and and like I said those different backgrounds and different experiences in our life change how each of us are individually going to 
read scripture, and a lot of times interpret. Kind of go into the different facets of how you read, like when you're reading scripture as a pastor. So when you're exegeting a passage for a Sunday morning, or as when you're just reading you know, scripture as a believer, yeah, as yeah. A, a, what are the differences in that? And, and where do the, I guess, where do, where do they overlap in similarity? Sure. I, I do think um, as a pastor, like this is the guidebook. So it, it, this is, the, John Wesley said that we are people of one book. And, and so like, this is it. So there are, you know, and Wesley read all kinds of things, but, but realizing that, that at the end of the day, in the ministry, in, in, in Christian leadership, there is, there's nothing else that holds the same weight as the scriptures. And so um, I, as a pastor, I believe that everything that I share has to start there. And, and, and so, because at some point I have no authority other than just my own intelligence, ability, you know, craftiness, whatever that is. And all that fails. All that is, is, and, and there's always going to be somebody sitting in front of me that is smarter than I am, that's you know, more intelligent, that's more studied, more well-read. So I, I'll never have any kind of authority based upon anything that's within inside myself. So when, when I start from the text, as a pastor, that's, that's got to be where I start from. It's the only foundation that actually has enough authority to be meaningful to, you know, oh, it was uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones had said one time that, that the church is the only place where where like a businessman and, and a fisherwoman can sit side by side and receive from the same sermon. Because the church doesn't, it, we're, not a, we're not supposed to be anyway a cult of personality and we're not supposed to be just a place where we increase in knowledge. We're, we're a place where we experience the, the, the presence of God through, through, through the teaching of the text, through the, the singing and worship. Like the, we, we experience the same thing regardless of where we are. So as a pastor, I have to start there because I, I want everyone to receive something. And, and so every other book I read that, as a pastor, um, with the exception of Dime Store Fiction, which I do to turn my brain off. Uh, every other book I read is an attempt to help me understand the Bible more. That's it. And, yeah. and so really, ev- it, it is really this, it's an upside-down pyramid, and the Bible is the foundation point, and then everything else that's inside of that pyramid is trying to help me understand that one book and, and see it from different angles, from different perspectives, uh, figure out better ways to, to talk about it, to, to illustrate it, all those sort of things. Um, but as a believer, the Bible is at its murkiest and simultaneously, it's most glorious when I just read it as a believer. Because I, I don't read the Bible as a believer the same way I read it as a pastor. I don't, I don't read to teach. I read and study because I believe that God has created us all with the capacity and the expectation to question things. And, and so if I'd come to the Bible, and I know, I, I get it, like the old bumper sticker, you know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I don't think that's bad theology, but nonetheless, <laughs> it, it is this, there, there's this idea that I think that God just said something, and he wants us to approach it statically like it when i think god is actually creating people to be dynamic like if 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 we weren't created to be dynamic then eden would not have had that one tree that could have tripped up adam and eve and and so god creates dynamic relationships with him and and his word is an is is an extension of how he communicates with us so i think we're supposed to come to the text and if, if i'm not reading it and coming to it and saying you know, mumbling to myself, why, why, why did you say what, what? What are you doing? Like, if I'm not saying those kind of things in my own personal reading, then I'm not really interacting with the scriptures. Because if I come to it and I say, I believe every word that's in all of these pages, all of these books, I'm a liar. Yeah. Like, I, I am. I, I don't understand it. I don't get half of it. I, I know that, that there are things that I just want to resist because I, I want to have my own way. But I also know there's a lot of things I just don't get. Uh, in, in Psalm 119, which is a psalm about the scriptures. Really, it's about the commands of God, the precepts of God, the word of God. And, and David is talking through this. And so in verse 32, he says this, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Like this, that idea that David says, when the center of me, the part of me that, that, that receives you the most fully, 
the, the heart of me, the soul of me. When you, can, when you start to expand that and leave room for all of these questions and all of this wonder, then I will run in the way of your commandments because I don't think we can truly follow the commandments of Jesus if we are staying so closed off that we don't have room for questions and doubts. Right. Like uh, Frederick Buechner said that, that, that faith cannot exist without doubt. They exist as poles, and so one sort of sustains the other. Faith doesn't exist if you know everything. Doubt has to be a part of it if we're ever going to walk by faith, which is what God, God says you can't please him without faith in Hebrews. So, like, I think David says, when you start to expand me to the point where I do have these questions, where I'm wondering about this, I will run headlong into the place where you've called me to go. And, and without that, and when, when, when there's this shrunken, shriveled sort of, of, of understanding of the text where it's just this rule book and we read it so that I can have a little bit of hope on this side of things and I can know how to treat my neighbor on this side of things, when that's all it is, it loses the dynamic beauty of what it was created to be. Yeah. It was not, it's not a roadmap. It's not basic instructions before leaving earth. Like it's not any of those things as much as we want to try and as much as we want to try and call it that because we want to understand it as a whole, I don't think we're supposed to understand it. We're supposed to climb into it. And, and like, I don't understand water slides, but you climb into them because you think that it's going to be worth it on the back end or at some point in the middle of it. And the scriptures are made and designed to be climbed into and to surround us and to become a part of who we are and what our journey is. And so as a believer, that's how I read it. And as a pastor, I don't always get that sign of opportunity because I have to tell people something that they can walk away with or at least ask better questions that I have worked through. But as a believer, man, I, I don't, I'm constantly reminded that it's okay to not understand and it's okay to not know and it's okay, it's okay to, but no, the disciples did not know. Like when they followed Jesus, he says, come follow me. They had no idea what they're getting into. Yeah. Like they had no clue. And he was okay with that. You follow the word. You don't know what the end, you don't know what the middle looks like. You hope you know what the end looks like. But, but at some point you just go. You go because it's compelled you, because it's called to you, yeah. because deep, again, it's calling to deep. And so there's a beauty in that. Yeah, I so many things to, to <laughs> add to that. Oh, this gets me so excited. For someone who's never approached Scripture that way, one that, like, just go in telling yourself, okay, I'm going to find one question, and I'm going to read until I find something mm -hmm. I don't understand, and it's okay if I don't figure out the answer right away. It's okay if I have to sit on that question Absolutely. for a year, if I have to yeah. ask people. Um I'd say that also um, just the the idea of, of questioning scripture and, and working through an idea to enrich our our knowledge. You know, it's not a sign of attack against scripture. It's a sign that you care deeply <laughs> because right, you right. want to gain that more understanding. I think of it like uh, watching your favorite movie, like in trying to, I love watching background characters in like TV shows and stuff. Cause like sometimes they'll do, especially sitcoms. Oh my gosh. If someone's like in a diner and there's like the weirdest couple in the background, just doing nonsense. And it's like your t attention isn't necessarily supposed to be there. There's something more obvious in the foreground, but there is like a really cool detail in the background. That's not the bigger picture. Um, and I find that that view with scripture, a lot of times where all I'll be in a narrative. Uh, one of the most recent examples, I was reading um, the the end of Matthew and uh, after Jesus's resurrection, um, but before his ascension, when he um, meets a group of believers and like, that's a really big moment. That's what's <laughs> in the foreground. Um, and then in one of the verses, it talked about how some doubted and and that that little aside of those background characters and it made me ask the question like why like did 
did he not look like Jesus? Like, well, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> you know, like, why why are they, they doubting if it's him? And then just took the time to think about, you know, how would I feel if the person I thought was God died and I thought they died, died. <laughs> and then yeah. I saw them again. I'd be like, I ate something wrong. I'm seeing things. This is a mass hallucination. Like that sort of doubt. And then looked into a word study of like, what is that word for doubt? What was the original intent? How does that differ from a definite doubt versus a hesitation? Like what what was the author intending? And and just the, the richness that one little word brought to a passage um, that I didn't catch the first time or even the 12th time that I read that chapter. But for some reason on that particular day, a question came up. Um, it's just such an exciting way to approach scripture. <laughs> yeah. And those are the things that make everything more interesting. Right, like mm. because I'm supposed to be closer to this. In in Ruth chapter one, Naomi leaves Moab to come back to Bethlehem, and and she's still bitter and she's still like just grumpy and and she like she's changed her name like she's got this terrible nickname now, and and but but she comes home, like she comes home. I I find it so beautiful that she says. I don't have the answers, and I don't even know how we're going to eat. I don't know where I'm going to sleep. I don't know what this looks like, but I've just got to come home. And I think when the scriptures become that place where I don't know what I'm going to get from it, and I don't know if I'm going to understand it, I don't know if anything's going to jump out at me today, but I'm just going to make sure I keep coming home. Because when you keep coming home, you find things that you won't find anywhere else. And I think that that idea that, that God has created and crafted and written and spun sort of this, all of these little things into the text, like, at the house, you, you find things. You still find things. Well, I guess if you live with people, they move things. Like, the kids will move things all the time. And so, like, that's not right, or that lamp wasn't broken, you know, last week, so what happened? But but you do see, I think, you see things that you didn't see, or you see them in a different way. Like, when the light comes in through the windows at a certain time of day that you're not usually home, you see your house differently. And I think those little things that are going on, they've always been there. But at some point, your life and the moment that you're in and your circumstance, your situation, collides with a text that you've always read a certain way. And suddenly that text isn't the same text it was. Suddenly you find out that there were some people who were doubting that Jesus was actually raised from the dead, even though he was standing right in front of them. And and I think, but but you only get that if you keep coming home. If you, if you determine that, you know... Whether it makes sense or not, I'm going to keep coming home to that text, and, and I'm going to keep coming home to this to this time that I that I, do, that I give to this to this practice, to this discipline, and and that's but that's the let's say it this way that's I think that's the prize for being a disciple. Yeah. The prize for being a disciple is that you get to see the things that people who aren't disciples don't get to see, and you can tell them about that, and they won't share your joy because they didn't invest all of those other moments of walking back home. Like, all the people in the town are looking at Naomi saying, oh, it's good to have you back home. She's like, I don't want you to talk to me that way. You didn't walk where I walked. You haven't been where I've been. You didn't lose a husband and two kids. I came back home not because it made sense. I came back home because I had nothing else. And now the story is more rich when she says suddenly, oh, Ruth, you found somebody. This is a near kid. Like, all that. I'm not going to go through the whole story. But that idea that the joy is made more complete because the sorrow was not something that kept her away from home. And, And I think when we keep coming back, the richness of what God does in our life is deepened at a level that people who just, you know, kind of drive by and swing by, or, you know, I, I read, I read, you know, Psalm 23 today because I, I felt like I needed to. I felt like God really wanted me to read that. All right, that's great. I hope he did. But but if, if that's the only thing that you've done this month, then you're probably not going to see the depths of, of the riches of the glory of God in the text. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think that that kind of speaks to, like, I, it's a picture of even our conversion and what Pastor Mark even preached on this past Sunday of our, our conversion, and that is an act of faith, but then what we do afterwards also matters. Yeah. And it's not just, we can't just keep going, well, I don't know anything, but it's an act of faith, right? <laughs> and so I think that that's where then this conversation is important to have because it is important to doubt. And I forgot what preacher I heard it from, but it's there's, there's power in the question. Mm-hmm. Jesus asked questions to the Pharisees that make them all just go, Oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and they just all just be quiet and they shut up because they're like, I don't know the answer yeah. to this question. Even though I was trying to trip you up, you have then in turn, by asking me a question, I am now flabbergasted, right? And so I think that there is power in the question. But then I think what we're also talking about is, and maybe I, I wrote this down and maybe finish the sentence if you can. Belief without knowledge is... Or faith without knowledge. Yeah, I mean, it's for one thing, it's weak. Yeah, I think I want to be careful because there are a lot of people who all they have is faith. Right. They don't have the opportunity. But I do believe, like I, again, I don't believe God treats everybody the same. I know that God is no respecter of persons. I understand that. But I also don't believe. I believe God treats us according to our circumstances sometimes, and and so I think that there is a um, oh. A, I'm not. This is not you know orthodox terminology, but but I think it was Tony Evans I heard. He referred to something called he called transdispensationalism, which he he says means that you are responsible for how much of God God has revealed to you. So his example was somebody who is mentally handicapped from birth is not responsible to do the same things as somebody who was born with full mental capacity. Right. So, so God reveals how much of himself he wants to reveal right. to you, and you're responsible for that. Absolutely. And so I do believe there are people who walk by faith because they have nothing else. Right. People who are born in, in, in places where they don't have any access to Scripture, don't have any access to you know, uh, in, any, sort of, any sort of spiritual tool yeah. uh, or, or, or Christian tool. Um, but like, we are not those. We are not. And so I would say for our culture, right. you know, faith without knowledge, belief without knowledge is weakness. And, and I think it, it creates a lack of stability. And so, you know, the buildings that we build can look any number of ways. That you can build them with angles or you can build them round. You can build them with smaller bottoms and larger tops. But the foundation has to be secure or else it falls. It right. doesn't matter how you build it. Right. And, and so I think... Knowledge becomes a foundation for the walk of faith. And again, if you see faith as a moment that you got saved, then you see faith wrongly. But like you right. just said, it's important. Faith is a walk. Right. Faith is, is, is a life. Faith is not one single moment. Faith is not a leap. Faith is a life. Right. And, and so if you see it that way, then you have to have foundation to walk on. And you know, Jesus talks in Matthew 7 about this idea that there is solid foundation. There is sandy foundation. Um, sandy foundation doesn't hold up under the scrutiny of real life. Yeah. That, that's the difference. Yeah. Storms come to everybody. But soft foundation doesn't hold up under under the burdens of life. Yeah, and I think that, that that is what I would agree with, and I circumstances, all everything that you just said, I, I completely agree with. And, and I think that that's, though, where I want to get into this next question as well, because I think that this is where we have to balance in our life this idea that we always are in search of more knowledge, not for the sake of knowledge, but for the sake of knowing. Mm-hmm. And I think in that, too, it's, it's kind of like... Uh, I think every kid, probably when they were a kid, tried to dig to China. Is that <laughs> yeah, just me? Sure, or absolutely. I would say for the... No, you didn't. Okay, fair enough. Hannah. <laughs> I was, I was so you're, you're digging into China, right? And you're five feet down. To you, in your perspective, that is a massive hole to you. Five feet down, five feet wide, whatever. Then when you realize you have miles to go before you hit China, yeah. you don't get that until you're looking at the bigger picture. But 
that still, even though I, even though when my dad came out and said, Nathan, there's no way you're going to get to China. It's not, I didn't just give up. Now, when I got to like six feet and hit a root, yes, I gave up. Right. But <laughs> I think that's the picture that we're, we, we're, we're supposed to spend our whole life digging into scripture, into who God is, knowing that we may not ever get there in our imperfections right now, but that, that doesn't stop us from digging. Right. And I think that that, and when we hit bumps, when we hit roots, it's not that we just say, and I'm there. Yeah. Like, this is where I'm going to spend the rest of my life until I'm made perfect in Christ. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I, I just can't figure out anymore. Like, like, I think my dad is a great example of it. He's been a pastor for 30 years, went to seminary, and yet he said his theological foundations have shifted and changed and had minute details changed. And the way he's interpreted, um, we, I, in my sermon a couple weeks ago, I, I, I had never even realized that when God says that Adam is alone, I think I just read over that time and time again. And my dad just texted me and said, I never realized that. And it's not that he's not smart. Yeah. It, it's one of those things where we're not going to know everything, That's right. but that doesn't stop us from digging into the word. In, in fact, what it should, I mean, what it causes me to do is literally just go head first. Like, oh, this is exciting. Every other thing in this world, I can kind of figure out the most of it. If, if we're becoming experts in an area, there are experts in areas sure. in, of the things in this world. And we would say there are experts in Christianity for sure, but there is not someone who knows every single facet of Christianity. And I think that that's the beauty of this. Um, and as a discipline, like what you're saying when... There's a difference between someone who reads Psalm 23, and I'll get into the question. I'm sorry. I, I'm talking too much. Uh, but there's a, there's a difference when someone who reads a five-minute devotional, right, in the morning, uh, three times a week, and, there's, and then someone who spends an hour in the Word mm-hmm. uh, morning or night, whenever you do it. There's a difference in how they're going to approach certain situations in their life or what they're going to turn to when, when unfortunate circumstances come up. And I think that that kind of goes into this next question because I think that there are people who we'll say time, time is one of the biggest things, right? That we'll say is, I, I don't have an hour to spend, right? You, like, I get this all the time. Like, Nathan, you're a pastor. Your job is to study the Word. And I'm like, while that is true, yeah. and while I do get to spend 20 hours or 40, right now it's like 40 hours, and Mark tells me I have to get that down, but 40 hours spending time, you know, prepping for a sermon because that's who I am. Uh, yes, I'm getting paid to do that. But in the same sense, if I was a believer, I would still be trying to spend Obviously, I wouldn't be spending 40 hours, but I'd be spending as much time as possible in the Word. And so I think it kind of goes into this question of how do Christians in general, how do they need to interact with Scripture, right? You've said as a pastor, it's kind of hard for you to do it as just a believer. Mm -hmm. And I think I I empathize with that as well. But there's this, the analytical study of Scripture and the emotional devotion Mm -hmm. of Scripture. And those two different things, like the balance of those, I think, in a Christian's life, in my conversations with people, it's so hard for people to balance that because either it feels like they're reading a textbook mm-hmm. or it feels like they're just emotionally charging every single sentence in the Bible saying, <laughs> oh, what is, and there were two lambs slain on the thing. What does that mean? Or there's two sparrows and a pigeon like, oh, that's speaking to the, you know, the dinner I had last night had too much. It didn't have enough bird in it. Like, I, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, no, there's a, there's a balance to all this, right? And it's, it's, it, I don't know. I don't think anyone's ever said that before. <laughs> but they probably have. As they probably have. But I think that that's where the struggle comes into play is I think, because we are, we are talking about Scripture as a spiritual discipline. And if you're listening to a podcast about it, you most likely have all the tools you need to truly dig into Scripture. 
Someone who is in the middle of an African tribe is not listening to the Illuminate podcast right now going, yeah, but I don't have any Bible around. Like, that's not who's listening to this. But if you are. But if you are in Africa, if you are in Africa, send in some suggestions of what you want us to talk about. I think, and so that's, that's where I think we have to come to this, you know, where's the balance? Uh, uh, and, and like you said, it is different for every circumstance. Some people have four kids and don't have enough time to spend an hour in the Word every single day. Some people have no kids and they're retired and they have all this time that they're using. And, and so it comes down to what's that balance of our interaction as far as it goes of that emotional devotion side of mm-hmm. things and the analytical study of it. Because I think both of those are is symbiotic, the right word, that they have to be together yeah. in that relationship of us reading scripture. But the balance of that, I think, is incredibly difficult. There, there's a couple things. I, and and I, I agree with you that they're, they're, ha- they, they're two sides of the same coin to a certain degree, so they have to exist together. If you, if you only utilize the emotional thing where, where you read the Bible and something speaks to you and you, know, and you alone, then you know, there's, there's certainly a place and a time for that. The Scripture speaks to where we are. But, but if that's the only thing that you're doing, if you're only looking for those little personal messages like, like bottles up on the shore of your island, then I think you're, you're not necessarily engaged in the Scripture as you should because knowledge and understanding of what the text actually says before it says something to you gives you the ability, I think, to actually interpret it well and to see what, it has, what it's been saying to you all along. I mean, I think sometimes God is really gracious and he says, you know, I'm revealing this, this part of this verse to you. So in the moment that you're in, you understand that there's hope, there's you know, whatever, my presence is with you. But, but a lot of the times, I think God is, is kind of looking at us, like shrugging his shoulders, saying, I'm telling you a lot all the time, but you're not allowing me to say it. Like, you, you know, the, the Bible says several times, you know, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Like, that there is something to be said for us opening our ears to what God has been saying all along. And, and I don't think, and again, I, I think God is more often reminding and reiterating than he is just sort of <laughs> generating something brand new. And, and so if we never have knowledge, if we never pursue an understanding of the text at its level, if we never take the text for what it, it is, we always want it for what we can make it, then I, I think we miss a lot of what God is saying. Um, but so uh, I'll read this. This is one of the quotes. This is from Eugene Peterson. Uh, he, has, he wrote a book called Eat This Book, and um, it's excellent. Excellent. I'm telling you, it is absolutely phenomenal on sacred reading, scripture reading, that kind of stuff. But he said, they said, Christians don't simply learn or study or use scripture. We assimilate it. We take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cups of cold water, missions to the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus's name. Hands raised in adoration of the father, feet washed in company with the son. And I think there's a beautiful part of that where he says, if we are reading to know and understand, then we are only reading it halfway. Yeah. And, and so there, there is this piece that there has to be a balance between knowledge and action. Yeah. And I think the emotional part of, of the reading should probably be taking place in, in terms of what we're doing with the text, not just what the text is saying to us. Yeah. So we seek knowledge, we seek understanding, and then in the middle of that, you know, I, I, I read... Who knows? Uh, um, you know, I, I read Matthew five, six, and seven this morning, maybe, and then you know, I'm I'm at the DMV, and sitting on either side of me are people that, you know, a make me sorrowful and b make me wonder if they're going to slap one side of my face, and I have to remember the text and say, okay, wait a second, I know what he was saying, I know what he said. Now, how does this affect the moment that I'm in? Yeah. And and so when when the text actually is digested and it becomes 
it's, it's supposed, it is symbiotic, but it's, it's, the text is symbiotic in a unique way because the knowledge is supposed to become grafted into the DNA of who we are as human beings so that what we live becomes a reflection of what we have known. Yeah. And, and too often we want things to, we want the Bible to speak to the moment that we're in instead of the Bible determining the moments that we get into. And I think that's, there's a big difference between those two things yeah. because one of those is proactive and one of those is reactive. Yeah. Now we can't do away with all reactive moments. Sometimes life just hits us, it attacks us, and we have to figure out what we're doing. We have to get our bearings. But for the most part, we control what we can do proactively. And, and when the scriptures are not a part of us by knowledge, when we're not studying the scriptures for the scriptures' sake, it, it's not rooted and grounded and, and assimilated into us. And so it comes almost as an afterthought. We walk away from a situation. It's like, well, it's like I, I should have said this. I, I, sh I should have mentioned this. I should have done this. Like, but when it gets, when, see, your instincts change when your DNA changes. And when the scriptures become a part of your DNA and your instincts are different, then you react differently to the moment because you've been proactive before the moment. And, and so I think... Knowledge and, and emotional reading, and again, I'm beating around that question a little bit because I, I wanted to go there intentionally, but knowledge creates a foundation that actually transforms our identity. But emotional reading speaks to the moments that we're in and gives us encouragement. So, I mean, th there is place for both, but I think, I, I think by and large, Western culture is looking more for that just, can you just plug the hole in my boat? Yeah. Like, and, and I think we're never pursuing the knowledge or we're never pursuing that ground level foundation for what the scriptures are supposed to be because we don't understand it. Protein and calories and carbs are important if you work out. Right. But proteins, calories, and carbs are poisonous if you don't. And I think knowledge you know, the, is, is, I think it's 1 Corinthians 13, it says that knowledge puffs up. Like yeah. There's this idea that when you obtain understanding and never allow it to be put to use, it is not healthy for you. In fact, it becomes something that's poisonous to you and it can actually degrade your health instead of increase your health. In Philemon uh, 6, you know, Paul, Paul says, and it's, I mean, a lot of people have read this, is I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Paul says, you can't understand the depths of knowledge of what I've done for you until you actually start walking it out. Yeah. And, and so if you hermitize yourself and say, I'm just going to read the Bible and I'm going to let God speak to me in this moment, but you never actually allow it to become an emotional movement in your life so that you touch other people's lives, you don't get the knowledge that you hope you get. You just get protein without, without any exercise. And, and that just makes you unhealthy and uncomfortable. And, and it frustrates you. It makes you resent it, honestly. Mm -hmm. I keep thinking about uh, this uh, not reading scripture with an egocentric lens. Um, but just searching for who God is and everything. And then who we are will come because of that. But that's not where we start. So I, I keep thinking of the, the story of David and Goliath because I feel like that's one that is very, very often um, turned into an egocentric passage where it's, you know, I'm David, what's my Goliath? You know, and that's yeah. the takeaway. It's Whereas I think a, a God-centered, um, I don't know what sort of Latin you'd have to change the, like to go from egocentric to theocentric, theocentric mm -hmm. view um, of that passage is that um, God called David and had a perfect plan for him to win a battle that he set before him and he did not need to um, heed any distractions or have any fear because God had prepared him for that moment. 
And that's the character of God in that passage. And so in my life, that's going to translate to, I can walk into any situation because God has called me into it and I can trust perfectly in his preparation in my life. Um, and I feel like that's where the, the perspective shifts. And I still come to the understanding that, yes, like I'm going to face something difficult and God has prepared me so I, I don't have to fear um, in those moments, but it's because I first looked at who God was and that's where that, that perfect understanding is going to stem from. I think you don't become that person just by listening to a preacher preach or just by, you know, uh, ab- absorbing books by, you know, uh, any number of authors. You get that by actually engaging the inspired word of God and letting that inspiration start to breathe through you in that wind. And I think that that changes who you are. And 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 it is. Then, then you don't walk into those valleys and think, David beat that guy to death. I can beat this thing right now. No, you realize that the most important part of, of, of 1 Samuel 17 is when he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord God of hosts. Like, yeah. that's that's the only part that actually matters. Like, I'm not coming to you as David or Jesse's kid or this guy's brother. I'm coming to you because God brought me into this moment, and God is bigger than you. You're bigger than me, but God is bigger than you. And so I'm just going to come in his name and let him do what he wants to do. And if you beat me to death, then fine. But I'm not going to let this moment pass without letting God into this moment. And so David's language, and you see it, man. The, there's a book I'm reading um, called Tale of Three Kings where... where um, uh, it says uh, that one of the chapters, talking about David when he has to leave Saul's presence, but but it says David becomes the greatest psalm writer in the history of the world by being in the wilderness and in the caves. Like that idea when you have nothing else except God, when you're starved for everything else except the presence of God, suddenly what you begin to speak and what you begin to sing is changed, and you begin to speak and sing things that are going to speak to other people in ways that only God could speak to them. And I think like David understands that. I mean, he, he was developed in the wilderness. He was developed in the in the by himself, you know, tending sheep. He was developed in the caves. And and so he speaks in a way that that reflects the beauty of the heart of God because he had gotten so much of God inside of him. And the scriptures and the text, they have the capability, they have the ability to do that for us as well, I believe. And that's where we, again, I'm Pentecostal, so I know you guys are all non-denom, you heathens. But nonetheless, like, I think that's where you begin to speak prophetically. Like, speaking prophetically has very little to do with predicting who's right. going to get elected or what the future holds, but speaking prophetically has to do with what would God say in this moment to you? Right. What would God say in this moment to a single mother who's struggling to find a job? What would God say in this moment to somebody who is, who's got stage four cancer? What would God say in this moment to somebody whose entire life's falling apart, their marriage is falling apart? Like, what would God say in that moment? It's not, oh, yeah, this is going to happen 15 years from now. It's this idea that he says, you can... You can my voice can speak through you when my voice has gotten into you. And if there's any way that his voice gets into us, it's by engaging a text that we don't understand all the time and that we don't even really think is all that valuable in the moment of our engagement with it, but it's changing us at a level that we could never imagine, just like a two-year-old starts to say things that you don't think they're going to say, and they repeat <laughs> things that you never wanted them to repeat because they have absorbed so much that they didn't understand, and suddenly they begin to speak things that everybody else understands in a way that's unique. Yeah, I think it's one thing I feel like I've been just sitting on since you've said it is the God reminds and reiterates more than he says something new. And I think that that's one of the biggest things as I've been studying scripture for however many years. I think one of the things that I always tend to underline is when he usually responds to someone immediately, when they come to him with, God, I'm in despair, God, my soul's downcast, whatever. He always responds with, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he responds with a reminder off the bat. And I think that for me, that that's the most powerful things that a lot of times we 
like what you said, like we're reading and what you guys have both just said, like we're reading scripture as it's what is it, what is in it for me? Because um, it is for us. But I think we put a period there when there has to be, I guess, a comma that says so that mm-hmm. we can then ultimately glorify God. Mm-hmm. And that's what it comes down to at the end of the day is we're reading this not just so that we can have more knowledge or so that we can even, I guess it is a part of, of us becoming right more like Christ, but at the end of the day too, it's so that we can glorify God and give him glory and give him the honor needed through the way we live our life, through the words that we speak to others, through how our heart is changing, all of those things, it comes down to that ultimate goal of glorifying God mm-hmm. in, all that, in, in all that he is. And, and I think that one of the things that I just, it just keeps resonating with me is that the thing that he does, I don't know if it's the most, and I didn't count how many times, but I can't tell you how many times he reminds people of just who he is. Yeah. And when it comes down to it, that's what scripture is. It's, it's telling us who he is, mm-hmm. telling us who Jesus was, and then getting to see then practical ways that then God is showing, he's told us who he is, now let me show you mm-hmm. how that is true. Mm-hmm. In different experiences, stories, narratives, poetry, like in all these genres, all it is doing is pointing us back to the character and nature of who God is. And I think that that's where it's the knowledge, not of, I mean, I've heard it said so many times, and I used to get so frustrated because they were like, it's not about knowledge, it's about knowing. I'm like, you're saying the same word, dude. <laughs> like, chill out. And, and, and I think that that's what it keeps coming down to, though. It's not about just this knowledge that's for me. It's about this knowing of his character so that we can be prophetic, yeah. so that we can truly become who God has created us to be, so that we can really live out our life as Christ would live it out. And we're never going to do it perfectly. And I think, too, maybe just for the listener, it's not as if we... I, and I'm, I, I am generalizing for all three of us here, but I guess I could say, like, we don't always read Scripture and we're getting, like, this massive experience. Like, sometimes, I, I, I mean, a lot of times it's a, it's a discipline, right? That's the word. It's a discipline because sometimes I'm just reading it yeah. because I, I know that even the days I'm not feeling it and the days when there is no emotional devotion and the days that it's just an analytical study or even days where I'm like, I don't even feel like searching out this text, I still have to do it. Because it's a discipline, and and I think that it, so just you know commitments are made by faith. Exactly, commitments are made by faith because you start exactly. in a place and you know that it's going to be different, but you made the commitment because you believe that by the end of it, it will be more valuable than than you imagine, or at least as valuable as you thought it was going to be. I mean, marriages are built on that, where we walk down an aisle and we say those words, or at least we we used to and still do sometimes. But we say, you know, for for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, you know, for richer or for poorer, I'm making a commitment to you, even when it's difficult because I hope that either A, the relationship is worth enough or B, after those moments of difficulty, there will be moments of, of delight. And and so like that, when we make a commitment to anything, to pray, I mean, prayer is the same way. I mean, all those things, I'm not going to get into anything else, but with the scriptures, if we, if we commit to saying, I'm going to allow this to be a part of my life, a shaping force in my life, I am committing to say, God, on the days it makes sense, wonderful. And on the days it doesn't, okay, you're still God. And I'm going to allow that to change me in a way that I can't imagine. And, and it, you're right. I mean, I think one of the stories that's fascinating, and it's a, there's a timeline piece. Um, Daniel and the three Hebrew kids, like when they are taken into captivity, it, it's a fascinating story because you've got these four individuals that do things that nobody would ever expect to happen out of a nation that, that was falling in such disarray that God allowed it to go in exile. Right, so this this whole culture is broken and destroyed, and yet there's these four guys who it doesn't seem no matter what happens to them, they're always going to choose this thing that that you you just think 
That's exactly what God would want them to do. Yeah, God wouldn't want them to eat all that crappy food. You know, God would want them to just you know separate themselves in terms of diet, separate themselves in terms of worship, separate themselves in terms of prayer, separate themselves in terms of behavior. Yes, absolutely. But but they come out of a culture that was deeply broken. And if you look at the timeline, though, Daniel and those three Hebrew boys are either born or raised on the tail end of the reign of King Josiah in Judah. And what Josiah did that was unique, there's two things about Josiah that was unique. He was a kid when he became king, he was very young. But second, what defined Josiah's reign was he dusted off all of the old law books and said, let's look at this again. Let's look at the word of God again. And there was a nationwide revival for a season. Mm -hmm. Daniel's life of of countercultural, powerful, prophetic, miraculous work was birthed out of a, a revival of the scriptures. And I think it wasn't new scriptures, it was old scriptures covered in layers and inches of dust that the priest said, we just found these things back in the corner in the temple. Like, what should we do with this? Is this fire stuff? He's like, no, dust them off and start reading them. Figure out what we're supposed to do. And, and I think if you see, and even if you look through church history, you look at like the Reformation. Like Luther, it's, there's an old expression from church history that Luther hatched the egg that Erasmus laid. Erasmus was a pre-runner to Luther, Martin Luther, and, and there had been this whole movement prior to Luther's career where the people were trying to get back to original sources. Instead of reading the Latin, they were reading the Hebrew and the Greek. And so some things were starting to make sense again because they were engaging the scriptures on their terms instead of trying to shape them. Luther reads about this, his heart is moving, he says, well, I don't want to destroy the church, but I do think there's some things that need to be done. And suddenly this, in, this enormous reformation takes place. Why? Because the word of God was dusted off again and looked at in its purity. Not something new, but something old that suddenly had a new meaning, a new revelation, a new beauty, and, and, and it changed everything that the world knew. And I think like that is this idea that we keep coming back to this thing that might look dusty, but if we'll keep dusting off the layers, we'll find that there's something really beautiful underneath all of that that can transform our life. Mm. So that was a little mini-sermon, actually, so I just kind of preached that. But that's <laughs> so um, good. We're just going to play it on Sunday, actually. <laughs> Mark is better. I'm telling you, Mark is better. We're going to stop our conversation here for today, but we hope that you were as encouraged and challenged as we were with these uh, different topics and discussions happening, and we hope that you can carry on these things in your own personal journey throughout this coming week. Yeah, and don't forget to send in any questions that you'd want us to maybe ask these pastors and professors and experts in these fields Uh, just questions that you maybe have about these topics like scripture, uh, prayer, generosity, fasting, tithing, all those things. Just send in any specific questions and that way we can maybe even bring them up in the middle of the conversation. You can hear your question asked and also we can kind of talk about things that maybe are more applicable to things that you all, the listeners, are going through. Uh, But thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next week. Bye.